look tonight at Romans chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of him who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay all of them their dues. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. We have concluded before Easter the five messages on the twelfth chapter of Romans. And there, the grand theme was lifted up of how every one of us is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, and shunning the conformity to this world, to seek to be transformed from within by the renewing of our minds. Then we went on to see God's call to use the gifts he's given us in appropriate ways to render true and genuine love to each other as our debt. And we saw how God wants us in his great strategy to overcome evil with good. What an agenda for a growing Christian is Romans chapter 12, as it deals mainly with the life within and in the circle of friends close by. Then as Paul enters Romans chapter 13, he broadens the scope of our Christian life until it takes in also, especially at the beginning, the relation of the Christian to his government. This has always been a touchy subject with believers, and I'm not positive I know why. Could it be because we have taken our precious doctrine of Christian liberty and twisted it a bit to our own inclinations? Could it be that we thought we had now come under the yoke of Christ so fully that we no longer need the yoke of man? That having been mastered by the true and indomitable Christ, how can we then submit to any human rulers? But there is this this difficulty that has been with Christians from the beginning, and that's one reason that the Holy Spirit has given us this definitive portion of the Word of God. And if we were to try to bring it together into a sentence, we might say that the glory 
of civil obedience is cooperating with God in his governing of the world. The glory of civil obedience is cooperating with God in his governing of the world. You say, it's not much glorious about moving along at 35 miles an hour. That's not very glorious when everyone's going right by you. And it's not very glorious to take your last dollar and write a check and put that in the envelope on April 15. That's not very glorious. Or is it? Or is it? Underneath this paragraph is a sense that here is a way for believers to give glory to God which they may have heretofore neglected, passed by, even despised. Let's look at it a bit deeper. What emerges as you begin to look at this paragraph is this great theme that God manages the world through civil authorities. And one is immediately struck in reading this with the supremacy of the power of God. That is, all power has its origin and its final and absolute exercise in God himself. Whatever power man may have over other men is not absolute, originating in himself, but comes from God. That's why the nations that are given to true religion are preservers of freedom. Because they recognize that the power they have is not a supreme power, not absolute, but derived. And there is one who has supreme power, and his name is the Lord God Almighty. Those nations which are atheistic in their outlook see power as coming from the people, originating in the governed. And they, therefore, tend toward totalitarianism, the lack of freedom toward dictatorships because they do not have that dimension of having to answer to a God from whom power is derived. Now God chooses in his wisdom to manage through the delegating of power at various levels to systems of government. And that's why we read here, there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. That is, every magistrate, every governor, every president, every senator, every judge, in every place, the powers that exist, whoever is robed with power and the dignity of governmental office has a claim upon the obedience of the people of God by virtue of being placed in that setting. Now that doesn't depend upon the merit of the office holder, as we're so apt to think. He doesn't deserve my respect. Why, I couldn't obey her order? No. 
Paul is clear by the Spirit to say those that exist, not the ideal ones, but those that actually are. Now, when Paul wrote this, he was under the Emperor Nero, and you couldn't find a more despicable man, unworthy of office, to be sure. But those that exist, said Paul, have been instituted of God. A marvelous matter that he says here. Not that God approves of their conduct of office or of their motives, but that God has ordained the structures of human government, and those that fill those places have been pointed there by God. They are not there for their own benefit. They are there to serve the righteous ends of the citizenry and of the Lord who appointed them. Due to human sin, these causes may be inverted and they may be seeking their own gain. But if you, as a Christian, are serving in the government of the United States or of any of its jurisdictions, I beg of you, in the name of God, do not consider that desk, that office appointed to you as a place of your own personal gain or of your own personal acquisition and achievement. But see yourself as appointed by God with a sacred duty. God manages the world through civil authority. He does this for the common good. This is a fallen world, and we are fallen creatures. And if God did not institute a system of governing, unbridled sin would have grave consequences for the human race. The fabric of human society would be rent. Anarchy prevails. Even the worst government is far preferable to anarchy. And so it is in the interest of the Christian to support and lift up appointed government, however bad it may be, because it is to the incalculable good of society that there be governing and that human evil be restrained, that the gospel may be published and that we may live in peace to witness and to serve. And so the Christian, you see, cooperates with God in muzzling the jaws of sinful men through instituted government that the word of Christ may go forth. And is our sacred duty then to lift up and support and strengthen the hands of those who rule over us. Now consider from one other aspect. If it is God's management of the world through civil authority, what is the relation of the believer to these civil authorities? It is described here clearly. Let's take a look at a few of them. It says here that let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And there's our first duty, subjection 
to the ruling authority. Now in the King James, as you know, it reads, let every soul, every soul. I like that better. That's closer to the Greek. And the idea is that one doesn't simply out of duty and grudgingly obey that law, 35 miles an hour, for example. No. From the heart, we subject ourselves, and that's quite different. Let every soul be subject. Now, notice that Paul is careful to make no exceptions. Human pride is such that we somehow think that we are the exception to the rule. And he here eliminates that possibility. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. That means that we humble ourselves, we submit, we bring our hearts under as much as our wills would assert themselves against law. We bring them under because of obedience. It's interesting that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we have an amazing statement. The Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, the opposer of the Christ, is called the lawless one. The lawless one. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7. He's called there several times the lawless one. Do you want to be identified with the Antichrist? Whoever resists human authority, according to this, is resisting God and is thereby sinning. You drive down the road at 36 miles an hour, you are sinning. So am I. Always say the state police give you five. They give you five. No, they don't give you five. That sign says 35. It doesn't say 40. Thirty-six is sinning against God in the light of this passage. Now, what is called upon here for us is not only, you see, just barely to squeak under the law, but what is called upon is to seek the approval of the magistrate. Not simply to get by with what we can, but to be commended seek his approval. And that is for our Christian testimony. We are to be such citizens that the rulers over us will take note of us and be glad that we are in their citizenry. That's a Christian citizen at work. We do this from different motives than our friendly non-Christian may have a neighbor living by who's a law-abiding citizen, wouldn't think of breaking any of the laws of the land that he knew of. And the Christian does the same, but there's a world of difference. He fears the wrath of the ruler, but the Christian has two reasons. He also feels, fears that wrath, but the Christian does it out of conscience, which means out of obedience to God and out of love for neighbor. 
So though we may appear the same to the ruler, it's altogether different. When the non-Christian obeys the law, he's sinning because he does it for the wrong reason. But when the believer obeys the law, he glorifies God because he does it out of obedience. And out of obedience to the command, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now let's think of a few illustrations. For example, we on Friday we sent in our income taxes and it's so easy to feel that these are an imposition upon us by a tyrannical government. But out of this passage there arises the whole basis for a system of taxation. This is God's way of helping us to meet the needs of others. Ever since Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. One can take many different illustrations of this and see how in daily life we are called upon to do the things that God wants us to do. But somebody says, Aren't there exceptions to this? Aren't there times when we don't obey the rulers? Well, in this paragraph, none is mentioned. No exceptions. And the reason is that God is more interested in our duties than he is in our rights. Our present society is far more interested in its rights than it is in its duties. God wants us to pay attention to duties. In other places of Scripture, however, notably the book of Acts, it is true that exceptions arise. When Peter and his fellow apostles were commanded not to preach, they said, out of respect, we must obey God rather than man. And there will be times when human rulers, incited by the devil, would stir you up to violate God's laws. And in that moment, though it cost you your life, you must say we will obey God rather than man. Those moments may come. And this is the reason why a tyrant cannot succeed in a godly nation. Godly people have no right to revolt against a tyrant, to plot against him in death. There is no basis in Scripture for that. But what godly people do is to refuse to carry out his evil orders. If the people of God had done that, there would have been no holocaust. The man that drove the train, the one that loaded the gas in the cars, the one that herded up Jews, the people that took part in that ugly and awful blot on human life. If they had said, no, take my life, but I will not have one part in this terrible thing, I must obey God rather than man. You see, a tyrant cannot succeed if people will not carry out his evil order. So there are exceptions. 
But do you know, as we learn to obey duly constitute authorities in righteous command, something wonderful happens. Do you know what happens? We are prepared by obeying for the day when we will rule. Because someday the state will wither away and believers will become the rulers of the world. You will rule the world as a Christian. Well, how do you think you're going to do that? There's two ways to prepare for your place of leadership. Are you getting ready? One is by intercessory prayer in which you take part with God in the governing of things now. You begin to pray for China. And you're already working with God in the administration of China. And the other way is by obeying duly constituted authority. You can't lead until you learn how to follow. And as you're learning how to follow, God's making you into a leader. And someday you'll judge the world. So that this admonition is eschatological. It looks to the future when we shall reign with Christ. Now notice how God both rewards and punishes along these lines. He rewards believers who obey this command of his. He rewards them with a sound and cherished reputation in the community as being righteous and holy. He rewards them with humility because when you bring that speedometer under 35, that's humbling. You may get there late. That's humbling too. But that's humbling. Character is developed. All kinds of rewards. Longer life. Greater safety. Greater happiness result when your life is solidly under the authorities of those that are over you. Pain is spared you. Riches are saved. And many rewards are given. God also punishes. He has two ways of punishing the violator of the laws of man. Sometimes he punishes apart from the civil authority. He can punish you without the state ever knowing that you disobeyed its law. God can punish you. So don't think, well, I didn't get caught. Guess everything's all right. No, God can punish you himself directly. Or he can punish you through the civil authority. Because that civil authority has a symbol of his office. The, the civil authority is an instrument of God to carry out his wrath against men, even believers. And so the civil authority spanks us sometimes. And the great sign of his office is the sword. The sword is a symbol of the entrusted power of the state in life and death. And that's why Paul says that sword has not been given to him in vain. When he uses it, he is not carrying out his own anger 
but the civil authority in the use of the sword is an administrator of the wrath of God on human sin. Sometimes a society grows weak in its moral fiber and begins to talk about abolishing the death penalty for the crime of murder. But you see, to do that is to contend against God. A society that begins to disregard the sanctity of human life is a society that is disintegrating in its moral strength. Here is one of the Bible bases for capital punishment. Capital punishment is based upon the sanctity of human life. God cares so much for the holiness of human life that he says wherever a life is taken, a life must be paid. The sword is given for a state to protect its borders and to keep its citizens free from the oppressor. The New Testament has no place in it for pacifism. When the Lord Jesus said to the prostitute, he said, go and sin no more, he didn't say to the soldier, now go and resign your office. He said, be content with your wages. And the Lord Jesus paid taxes, and part of those taxes supported the Roman army, and he knew it. You see, the interesting thing is that when the magistrate or the state takes the sword in its hand, it is anticipating the final wrath of God, judgment day. Every execution is a little foregleam of the final judgment day moved forward in history so that we can get a tiny idea of what the wrath of God is all about. And when a nation reduces itself away from the death penalty, it is taking out of its life the reminder that one day we will reckon with a righteous God in judgment. But if the death penalty also reflects the coming judgment day, it's also an instrument of great mercy because by the state using the sword, it restrains evil in the world in such a way that the day of final reckoning is deferred. Evil is capped so that the gospel may be proclaimed and souls may be saved before the judgment of the Lord falls. And so the sword of the state is both an instrument for proclaiming God's coming judgment and a present sign of his long-suffering mercy that he waits till all of the elect should be gathered in and his church be complete and then the judgment will come. Can you think of anything more glorious than being able to serve God in civil obedience, lifting up the structures that he has given for his glory and honor? 
and for the incalculable good of promoting the preaching of the gospel in the world. Would you like a commendation from the Lord? He met a centurion, and the centurion said to him, Master, I know all about you. For I'm a man under authority. I say to some, come, and they come. Go, and they go. And when Jesus heard that man have a clear sense of the structures of authority under which he lived, he said, I have not seen such faith in all Israel. He commended the man for seeing the divinely ordered structures and finding his place within it. And so will God commend you. So will you glorify him as you live as a person under the authority of those whom God has placed over you and live there happily and obediently. Now as our close, I want to read a prayer of Clement. Now this Christian was alive in the year 30 to the year 100 A.D., I want to show you how far we have come in our attitude from those first days. Now, the, the people he was praying for were pagan emperors. Listen, here's his prayer. Give concord and peace to all that dwell in the earth while we render obedience to thine almighty and most exalted name and to rulers and governors upon the earth. Thou, Lord, hast given them the power of sovereignty through thine excellent and unspeakable might, that we, knowing the glory and honor which thou hast given them, may submit ourselves unto them in nothing resisting thy will. Grant unto them, therefore, O Lord, health, peace, concern, and stability, that they may administer the government which thou hast given them without failure. For thou, O heavenly Master, King of the ages, givest the sons of men glory and honor and power over all things that are upon the earth. Do thou direct their counsel according to that which is good and well-pleasing in thy sight. I don't know about you, but I've never prayed for our leaders like that. Let's pray together. Blessed and gracious God, who hast so bridled human sin that we can live in peace and carry on our work, we praise and thank Thee and we ask forgiveness for every resentment, spirit of uncooperation, every failure to pray and uphold those whom thou hast appointed over us. Lord, make us a testimony in this city of living graciously so as to be commended by those over us. Give us grace, Lord, so to uphold the laws, statutes of this land, that it may be preserved from anarchy, that this fabric may not be torn,
but that the gospel may be published with peace and joy. In Jesus' name we ask.